welcome to McLean's Pop Culture Podcast, Thrill, for the week of March 20th. On this week's show, Good Kid, Mad Industry. We've got a pool full of surprise release albums, so we'll dive in it, starting with the rapper Kendrick Lamar's much-hyped record, To Pimp a Butterfly, which abruptly came out a full week before it was expected. Do album release dates even matter anymore? A Winnie roast. Embattled Canadian pop singer Justin Bieber insists that he's turning over a new leaf, so he's decided to offer himself up to Comedy Central's roasts as a result. Will it work for his image? And The Rocket Man burns up at Dolce & Gabbana. Elton John takes on a pair of high-fashion icons over their retrograde beliefs and calls for a boycott. Will it work and doesn't matter? I'm Adrian Lee. I'm Emma Title, And I'm Julia De Laurentiis Johnson. And this is The Thrill. Late last Sunday, a full week before LA rapper Kendrick Lamar's highly anticipated follow-up to his record label debut, Good Kid, Mad City, supposed to drop, Kendrick Lamar himself dropped it out of nowhere. Here's Institutionalized off the album To Pimp a Butterfly. It's another example of a growing trend in music, especially in hip-hop and R&B, of releasing full-length albums suddenly without any warning. Which begs the question, do album release dates even matter anymore? But let's just talk about this album first. So, Adrian, what did you think of the record? Yeah, so, you know, as you said, the the album was hugely anticipated. Uh, Good Kid, Mad City was this this amazing uh, album. His major record debut. Uh, people compared it to Illmatic, uh, the album from Nas that came out in uh, the early 90s that, that just was this perfect expression, uh, not just of, like, what hip-hop can do, but also of, uh, you know, what it's like to be a young black man, uh, you know, in the 90s and here again in, you know, the mid-2000s. Um, so the, the album says a couple things to me. One, uh, the West Coast is, is where the stuff is happening. So this was a really dark, brooding, funky, interesting album. Uh, the West Coast has kind of been doing this kind of thing for, for a while now. Uh, a collaborator uh, on the album is the uh, producer Flying Lotus. And uh, this is a guy who's who I, who's related to John Coltrane. I think he's his nephew. Uh, and you can really see it over the course of the thing. It's very, you know, it's very dark and, and, and layered, uh, instrumental. Uh, you know, when I was listening to the album, I really was thinking a lot of uh, Charles Mingus's album, Mingus Ah Um, just as this kind of like roiling kind of thing. Um, there's also what was interesting to me is the the kind of radical religiousness of the album. Um, over on McLean's, Mike Doherty wrote an al- uh, Mike Doherty wrote a story about the positivity of of hip hop and and the sort of wave that's coming over it. And to me, this wasn't so much positive as it was uh, Kendrick Lamar coming out and saying, hey, I'm actually like a, a really devout Christian. Uh, you know, there's references to uh, his profiteering. There's references to uh, Lucy or Lucifer as this kind of, um, you know, this 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 lure of temptation, of sin, of him who now, you know, tasting fame, getting out of uh, the mad city of Compton and now being tempted by things like uh, things like sin. So to me, the album was this really beautiful thing that really reflects where he is right now. Uh, and I think on just in a lot of a lot of accounts, I was in I was very satisfied by it. Uh, Julia, what did you think? Yeah, I really um, liked it, too. And I, I think that in this album, Kendrick has solidified his position as like peak rapper. And what I mean by that is that he seems to be showing himself as the hybrid of something that's been culminating for 30 years. He's this kind of rap cocktail of um, with the poetic sensibilities of like Tupac in this album anyway. And he's got the rage and clear f- focus of uh, dead prez and he's manic and vulgar like Eminem. And he's all anxious about rap stardom and articulates that really well, just like An- Andre 3000. And he's got this 
in this album, he's got this spoken word, gentle devastation that reminds me of um, uh, Gil Scott Heron. Mm. Now, he doesn't do it all at the same time, but uh, when he does in this album, it, it uh, when he hits it, that's who he reminds me of. It's like avant jazz rap. It's something really different yeah. and new, which is nice. But it's not, yeah, I don't think it's all perfect because so, like sometimes the album's a little too dissonant and um, he's got a little bit too much of a like a savior complex for me sometimes but I think that's probably hard to avoid when the industry that you're in tells you that that's who you are because he's considered like this absolute golden child of rap um, but I think right now he's kind of like raps Beyonce and not just because he dropped a surprise album the same way that Beyonce did but it's that um, no one who likes music is really on the fence about this guy anymore if and if they were they aren't after listening to this album and if they still are they are wrong <laughs> so Emma, what do you think uh i liked the album also and i'm not a huge kendrick lamar fan not that i don't like him very much but i'm not as familiar with his work as you guys are but i think what is so important about the album is that it was a surprise release and we're seeing that a lot more and more these days with beyonce and with d'angelo black messiah um and I think that what the surprise album release does is it makes the album significant again. I mean, we do live in sort of a post-album world in the sense that people are always making playlists, listening to, you know, singles one song at a time, and you lose that that sort of pleasure of listening to a, a whole body of music like that, listening to an album, and especially in, in rap, there's lots of interludes that are really funny or entertaining, and you sort of lose that when you're just listening to random songs um and i think that what the surprise album release does is it sort of creates a moment and it makes you feel like again on another previous podcast when we were talking about binge watching it sort of creates this a similar anxiety when you hear you know this this album has dropped right now out of nowhere you think oh well i have to listen to it now even yep. though even though you know the album's going to be there you know, next week or the week after, it, it creates a sense of urgency, yeah. mm -hmm. like of artificial urgency, and you get excited. Like I, me not being a big Kendrick Lamar fan, I still thought, oh, like there's, there's something happening. I yeah, have it to creates listen. a bandwagon. It's like, let's get on it. And so even the music industry is, is acknowledging that hype is is not the way it sort of used to work. Um, the the you know for for many years, I think since the '80s, I believe it was North American record release dates was on Tuesday. It was and 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 to quote Vox, it was just that day because there wasn't like any you know thinking behind. Oh, like Tuesday is midweek. It's just people wanted Tuesday, whatever. Here it is, and and tradition goes, and and there it is. Now uh, after <laughs> inexplicably after months of debate, seven or eight months of debate, they're finally moving it to Friday, which is kind of just when people want music they'll have it for their weekend or whatever and the reality is you know though north america had it on tuesday it was coming out in europe earlier things were coming out online and and that's you know the, the industry is sort of realizing that if we are going to create this buzz for an actual album we should probably globalize the thing and give the people what they want yeah i mean you don't have to look as like i mean beyonce the one who arguably started this whole thing um that was such a that was such an important pop culture moment like I, for me i was so surprised when the grammys didn't actually give uh beyonce album of the year just because you know the grammys are this place where it's supposed to you know remind you why a record is so amazing an album a cohesive experience a musical uh, 
you know, statement is so important. And I think that there hasn't been as important a musical statement as Beyonce's where, you know, I think a lot of people remember exactly where they were when the Beyonce album came out all of a sudden. And we listened to the whole thing because it came out as a whole thing. It came out as this amazing package of audio and visual and, and all this all this stuff. And the same thing obviously happened with Kendrick Lamar. I mean, you, you know, the, the, the stats came out that it is the number one streamed album uh, on Spotify right now. The same thing happened with uh, Drake's album sort of album, sort of mixtape, if you're reading this, it's too late, where all of the tracks became Billboard charting songs. And that's, you know, and despite the fact that the album is, you know, only okay, it reflects the fact that we really want these things. You know, these days we may be in a post-album world, but I do think we actually see, are seeing more album uh, packages despite that. I think we're seeing, you know, more concepts. I think we're seeing more cohesive statements. And I Mm -hmm. think that it reflects that, you know, as listeners, we still want those album experiences. It's just not quite the way that we're consuming it digitally But the anymore. fact sort of remains that you need somebody to tell you it's important. It's not like when somebody comes out with an album that is anticipated, we flock to listen to that album. It Part of its importance is the fact that it's a surprise and that people tell us it's, you know, this thing is happening. And it, yeah. cre- it does create a sense of urgency and makes it exciting. It's certainly a power move insofar that it mobilizes people to mm-hmm. become early adopters, like you say, like it acts like cool currency, right? Because it's like those in the know um, f- or trying to find it as fast as can, like an Easter egg on the internet, right? It's like, who knows about it first is he who wins. It could ramp up sales before bad reviews show up. And like you said, Beyonce is like it's sold more than 800,000 in just three days. And Drake sold 500,000 in the first week. Like it doesn't, you don't need release dates. It would you know appear. what's interesting though is that with Beyonce, I'm a huge Beyonce fan. And when that album came out, I was so excited, especially because it was a surprise. And I was very quickly calling it, you know, one of the best albums I've ever heard and mm-hmm. one of my favorite albums. And my mom is also a big Beyonce fan, but she's totally out of tune with, you know, the the internet zeitgeist and mm-hmm. so had no idea that it was a surprise. And she listened to it and was like, yeah, it's okay. You know, I like her earlier work better. And I wonder if that has, so- has something to do with the fact so you that mean she, she wasn't influenced by the hype. Yeah, she didn't know it was a surprise. She wasn't, she didn't right. know about the hype. And so it was sort <laughs> of like an average album for her. Right. And that's part of the, the thing that I think is interesting. The same way we talk about binge watching and how we should make binge watched uh, TV shows. I think there is a way. There is there is a kind of album that benefits from this sort of surprise uh, release drop. I think albums like Kendrick Lamar's and D'Angelo's work especially well because the hype is so huge. D'Angelo's is sort of different. We knew that Kendrick Lamar's album was going to come out. Uh, it was going to supposed to come out this coming weekend. Uh, it sort of happened a week early because leaks sort of forced his hand. Um, and well, uh, but also it was dropped on the 20th anniversary of Tupac's Me Against the World. Sure, probably not an accident. Um, <laughs> but uh, but like the the D'Angelo record, for instance. That one, he had not put out an album in 10 years. We had been hearing about this album for about that same amount of time to the point that really no one believed that it was ever going to happen again. And all of a sudden, it existed. Mm-hmm. Like, it, just the fact that you you had no time to let yourself be disappointed. The fact that you were listening to New D'Angelo right. made it amazing. Just, you know, I was taken by it. I was like, this. it's really hard for me to parse this album because mm-hmm. I don't have the, the, you know, the information I need to, like... I just want to consume the heck out of it. And I'm thrilled that it exists in the world. Uh, right. So that's like a, a study of, about hype because there's there's a difference between hype about something that you are awaiting and then comes out and then something that you're not waiting and then the hype comes after it exists. So it's like how 
the old adage or how Adrian recently let me know that it's also his dating mantra about allowing <laughs> them to expect less but then to give them more. Let everyone know that right now. <laughs> recipe to cultivate positive response. So, so Adrian's dating ethos and modern musicians in the internet age find some common ground. Yeah. <laughs> Tinder, thanks. <laughs> thanks, <Good>. Tinder. <laughs> This past weekend, Comedy Central recorded another one of its famous roasts, this one skewering the exasperating Canadian pop star Justin Bieber, the sword of pride of Stratford, Ontario. For this one, they called in comedians like Kevin Hart, Hannibal Burris, and seriously, Martha Stewart to lampoon the Biebs. Roasts have been happening for a long time, though, of course. You know, Julia, why don't you start us off? What's the value of a roast these days? To me, they now chiefly seem like thinly veiled PR moves wrapped in a couple of jokes. It's It feels like an amusing advertisement, like it's the old spice guy of comedy. Um, so just a little context about roasts is that they started as the Press Agent Society over 100 years ago, and they morphed into something called the Fri- Friars Club, which consisted of a motley crew of actors and comedians and showbiz types and reporters, and they sort of like a gentleman's club, I guess. And then they were so amused by their the quips that they told each other at their cocktail parties that they started um, holding black tie dinners to honor themselves. Classic dudes. <laughs> and um, these nights elicited headlines by reporters in attendance, like one in 1910 that said, veteran theatrical manager butt of jokes at dinner so the intrigue of possible hilarity was ripe and then they realized they had something and in 1949 uh, with famed singer and vaudevillian Maurice Chevalier they had their first roast and they started televising them in the 60s and then in the 70s they had the Dean Martin roasts which I remember watching my dad and it was always populated by legendary comedians like Bob Hope and Groucho Marx and Milton Berle and Phyllis Diller and they told these playful anecdotes and it had a very inside baseball feel to it which was but it was really fun because it felt like you were a fly on the wall watching these comedy geniuses just try to make each other laugh but now under comedy central's reign the roasts really do seem like thinly veiled pr tools like donald trump was roasted in 2011 and it was allegedly to boost the ratings of the apprentice charlie sheen did his in 2011 which was at the height of his hashtag winning public insanity Mm. spiral and it was actually aired the same night that ashton kutcher premiered as his replacement on two and a half men and then there was a planned willie nelson roast in 2008 which was meant to coincide with the release of his box set and that was canceled actually but now with the with biebs it just it seemed to serve as a platform for him to apologize for his recklessness and entitled behavior and hopefully appear like humble and likable because at the end of the roast he he has like the sincere apology moment where he's like i'm you know he, where he does apologize for his reckless behavior and is like it's not who i am and i'm gonna try to do better and and make sure that i i appear in your eyes as you know that i'm i'm the beebs i was always was like it was just very yeah i've got the, i've very got very earnest yeah i've got the quote uh so the things that i've done really don't define who i am i am a kind-hearted person who loves people and through it all i lost some of my best qualities for that i'm sorry this is this is what he said like, after the roast right and it's just they used to be more about honoring the legacy of an entertainer and sure it's always been like a little bit of a pr move i guess but now that they don't even have this decency to veil it anymore <laughs> I don't know. I kind of disagree with you in that I think it can't help but to be a PR move. There is kind of no greater evidence of your confidence and power than if you're willing or if you're willing to sit in a room full of people, really smart, funny people telling horrible (laughs) jokes about you. I mean, that. That's a power move. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's a power move. It yeah, is. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of like it's like uh, it, it, when you make self-deprecating jokes, you don't essentially believe the premise. Otherwise, it's like profoundly sad. It's self-deprecating because you're like, I'm okay with myself, and I'm gonna make these jokes. Yeah, about there's it. no greater proof that you're okay 
and you're being there, sitting there listening to all of that. And so I'm, it makes you likable. Like it's it's sort of, I don't like Justin Bieber, but now I kind of do because he was right. roasted and I can't oh, so help. Worked. I can't help it. <laughs> I think it's just because it used to not coincide with the release of some project they were trying to do. It was just like, this person is fun and they deserve it now. Let's just chat about the coolness of this person. Frank Sinatra. Mm, that was a good one. So you know what I mean? Like it's just like. You're old. D- hey. <laughs> Experienced. Well, it, it, does it Justin of, Bieber deserve a roast right now? Except f- f- to for the fact that it makes him look good. Well, it's certainly the right time for it. So the commercials that they're airing right now, uh, they're just this slow motion of Justin Bieber with his shirt off. Um, but uh, no, it's it's people throwing eggs at him in slow yes. motion, oh and you don't really realize how much you uh. want a roast until you see a person wear, not wearing a shirt having eggs thrown at the person <laughs> in slow motion to be Where like, oh the my dignity? god, you're right. This is the thing I wanted secretly. But it's but it's it's our society, right? It's why we read tabloid magazines. Is why because we want we'll never really want to let famous people just be famous people. We like will always want their comeuppance. That'll just be the case. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and defend Justin Bieber, okay? Because I think he's sort of a monster of our own making and he came of like he became right. famous um when he was coming of age and I think that if that happens to you, you have no choice really but to be a complete jerk. I'm not. That's totally fine. Like I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with Justin Bieber. I am saying that they are messing with the legacy of the roast. Like they are using it for ill will, thinly veiled as goodwill, and that I can't. I can't abide that. Yeah, it's actually interesting that you bring that up, Emma, because I think that in this room there's three people who are kind of Justin Bieber apologists. I mean, I'm not <laughs> not to say that not to say that it's like oh Justin Bieber have at it you like horrible child. He is a. It is true that he has been a real jerk. Like that is I think we can all agree. But like musically, he's done some pretty interesting things lately. Um, he had that uh, one song with Chance the Rapper oh boy. that that, I, uh, that Julie song. and I are really into. He's done, you know, he's put, and, and you know that was a time when Chance the Rapper was still this sort of coming up guy, and he sort of helped put him on to his massive fan base of, you know... I also feel strangely responsible for him because I feel like I discovered him alongside Usher when I was in university. I watched his YouTube videos. <laughs> oh, when so he would you're play who's to blame? Guitar, and I would tell all of my friends like, "This guy's gonna be somebody one day." Oh my well, god! You heard it here first. Great this power is, uh, comes great responsibility. Yeah, this Emma Title, self-acknowledged influencer. Emma Title <laughs> came up with Justin Bieber in the first place. You're welcome, Justin Bieber. Uh, Yeah, and just so everyone knows, the roast of Justin Bieber, though it happened last weekend, airs March 30th. So this week in Odd Beefs, we have in one corner Elton John, rightful gay icon, married to his Canadian husband, Dave Furnish, father to children. And in the other corner are Domenico Dolce and Stefano Gabbana the gay man who founded the high fashion house Dolce & Gabbana and who, in a field-raising series of comments, called children conceived by in vitro fertilization, quote, synthetic children, wombs for rent, sperms chosen from a catalog. Their called for, quote, traditional family values were then lampooned by Sir Elton, who called for a boycott of D&G. Dolce & Gabbana didn't so much apologize as they, well, called for a boycott of Elton John. Emma, what are we supposed to make of all this? Well, I think the perfect punishment for Dolce and Gabbana would be 
to force them to uh, lend out their sperm to <laughs> lesbian couples, I would gladly accept the sperm of either Dolce or Gabbana. Mm. Um, but in all seriousness, I think that what's interesting about this is that Dolce and Gabbana's point of view um, isn't all that radical. I think that that the view we have now, the progressive view, is very new, um, and that pre sort of normalization of same-sex marriage and same-sex uh, parents, a lot of gay men had this view, which was that we're sort of on the fringes of society. Why would we want to be a part of, of uh, you know, bourgeois, hetero, <laughs> mainstream family mm-hmm. life? And I feel like that's what I sensed from their comments, not so much like that they were crazy right-wing, you know, religious fundamentalists who were really opposed to in vitro fertilization, but that they were just sort of they found the whole thing distasteful of gay people trying to be normal, trying to take on this lifestyle that that's actually very new. And it kind of reminded me of Fran Lebowitz when um, she still says this today when she says, I don't understand why, you know, gay people wanted to be accepted into two of the most oppressive institutions in history, marriage and the military. And so I disagree with their comments, obviously, because I'm a product of the new gay world mm-hmm. and I would like to have a family someday. And I don't think that kids conceived by in vitro fertilization are, you know, freaks of nature or anything. But at the same time, I I find the boycott aspect of this interesting in that I don't really know what they're what people boycotting this are trying to achieve. I know this is a popular thing right now. People boycott things they disagree with, but that you know, and there if you look at boycotts fashion related boycotts throughout history, there have been some successful ones like in 2005 uh, 24 s- teenagers started a girl cot against Abercrombie and Fitch because the the uh, clothing line launched a series of T-shirts that were emblazoned with things like "Who needs brains when you have these?" Obviously, in <laughs> oh, reference boy. to you know the girl's breasts who's wearing the T-shirt, and also. I had a nightmare. I was a brunette. And so these these T-shirts caused a backlash. <laughs> and shirt. eventually the, you know, Abercrombie and Fitch, I'm sure cynically after they had run out of inventory, but they stopped reprinting the T-shirts. But I think with in, in this case, people are just boycotting the fat, you know, the views held by two of the fashion designers. It's also funny because it's Dolce & Gabbana. Nobody can afford that anyway. Like maybe the accessories, like the sunglasses. But right. Anyway, Julia, what do you <laughs> um, I I certainly agree that the boycott part. As Adrian told me this week, I have been boycotting Dolce & Gabbana my whole life. And True. honestly, it seems like the prices of Dolce & Gabbana are a more effective barrier to buying this brand than uh, any celebrity who is saying, I will never wear Dolce & Gabbana again as Elton John and now Posh Spice. And I'm, I'm sure there's a few others. Since. Madonna. Madonna. In. Madonna. Classic Madonna. Led boycott might be. But... Um, because obviously those are the only people who can't afford it. And um, that won't hurt the brand, obviously, if if three celebrities can't buy it because, um, or sorry, if three celebrities won't buy it because the brand remains an aspirational brand. It's something that to be viewed only in the pages of fashion magazines or heard in the lyrics of rap songs for the average plebe. So until it's boycotted in the places where it's like seated to be thought of as an important in terms of cultural conversation having celebrities denounce a brand is just like slacktivism 
it doesn't or like a personal personal righteous indignation so that everyone knows that you are offended but maybe like elton should throw a benefit and where all of his glitzy celebs donate a bunch of money to ivf organizations that's probably a better point the irony is that you're probably going to see a lot of like right-wing Christian conservatives who would never buy Dolce and Gabbana yeah. buying it now. Because this, you know, well, this is always an opportunity. So well attired. Yeah. It's always an opportunity for like straight homophobic people to say like, look, that gay guy yes. has the same views like as Like Chick-fil-A. Like Chick-fil-A. Yeah, I was about to say, Chick-fil-A was really, really got a boon out of its right-wing claims <laughs> about abortion. So. Yep. Also, like you say, it's it's become apparent that only things that you say and and not do in the fashion world it really gets you in trouble. So like in 2011, John Galliano was fired as head of Dior after making drunken anti-Semitic remarks in a Paris bistro. And then he was, you know, he was chastised publicly. But a couple years later, he got a top job with Oscar de la Renta. But in the 90s, uh, Nike sales dropped after they initially denied responsibility for any malpractice that may have been taking place in um, its subcontractor factories like sweatshops. And they denied that workers' rights at suppliers' factories were any of their concern. And sales went like, pew. And I think in the same way that uh, with um, Abercrombie and Fitch, it's probably because in part the average people can afford those things. And so they chose not to buy them and make make a stink about it as opposed to high fashion brands, which are just out of reach for most of us. So it's not like we can. <laughs> yes, I too will not buy any Dolce Gabbana as you, per usual. Yeah, but, well, it's interesting because if I recall, um, you know, that mass market, that mid market point, uh, they often do like pretty stupid stuff. Like H and M had that, uh, like put out a shirt that was, I believe it had like a big swastika on it. Oh. Uh, Zara had um, uh, like a, I think like a children's onesie or something oh, that yeah, was very similar to the de- that's right. But it, it was like, like it Holocaust. wasn't supposed to be. It was supposed to be just a fun star. This is like literally what they fun said. It's just, like, just a fun design. Right. Um, and like they they continue to like. I mean, they eventually stopped doing it, um, but it wasn't like through a boycott. And no one, I don't think, their bottom lines were not meaningfully affected. And if in those situations um, the boycott isn't working, then what, what's even the point? Like that should, like the point of the boycott is you're hitting them where it hurts, right? Which is the bottom line. They're punished for something that mm-hmm. is not a, a widely held uh, concern. And because of that, they shouldn't reflect, uh, you know, our taste as well. But if if like Zara and H&M and places like that and Urban Outfitters, I mean, Urban Outfitters is is problematic for a vast number of reasons, including its portrayal of Aboriginal. Continual offender. That's right. Um, And if those aren't the ones like we're still going to shop there, then what's even the point anymore of a boycott? And and like it's just like the 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 clear statement of like, I will not shop there anymore. It's also just so unuseful. Like I find it so imprecise to the point that it's like, whatever. Um, I think it's even funny, for instance, that uh, though Elton John believed that this boycott was going to be going for a long, long time. (laughs) It's a great joke I made. uh, It, uh, he was, he was, he was spotted holding a Dolce & Gabbana bag uh, a day or two days after the whole thing. Yeah. And his spokesperson actually had to give a statement that just said that uh, actually uh, that was uh, his lunch bag. Uh, so he was not actually shopping. I bet you that Dolce & Gabbana yeah. sent him a big bunch of flowers and something. He was like, we're so sorry. We didn't right. mean to offend you. And since now Elton John has, has taken forgiveness for being personally offended, he's like, boycott off for me because I feel fine now. <laughs> well, right. protest is exhausting. You know? <laughs> Especially when there's so much shopping to do. Yeah, so nice. It it just like makes sense. It as a as a product of our time, like there's so much umbrage being taken with everything. I don't know if I said that word umbrage. right. Umbrage. No, I like I like the way you said umbrage. it. Umbrage. <laughs> and it's classy. Yeah. It makes sense that it's like a big. There's like a lot of fireworks, and then that's it. It's gone. Like I don't think people have very much. They might have a lot of anger and rage, but they don't have much time to 
continue in that state. It's kind of exhausting. Well, I, for one, will be continuing my personal boycott of the Dolce & Gabbana brand. You hear me? You're here. Yeah. And I will be writing a personal letter to the boys. I don't know. Are they brother? Dolce & Gabbana, former gay couple. Oh, to the men requesting a vial of their sperm. So a cocktail. Selected from the catalog. <laughs> we all have our work cut out for us, I guess. Well, that's it for this week. Find new episodes every Friday at mcclains.ca and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and BeyondPod. Leave us a rating or a comment on iTunes or drop us a comment on the site. If you like this, make sure to check out our politics podcast, On the Hill. You got to hear some of our columnists, like our very own Emma Title, read their work at McLean's Voices. Both are on iTunes and Stitcher. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Rose Title. You can follow Julia at Julia Del J. And me at Adrian K. Lee. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.